Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One from the Commonwealth Club, my guest is Gina McCarthy, head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Over the next hour, we will talk about growing the economy, cutting carbon pollution, fracking the Arctic, dirty energy, hardball politics, and a lot more. Our conversation will also include questions from our live audience here in San Francisco. President Obama has made cleaning up the climate a priority in his second term cornerstone of his agenda is a plan to reduce pollution from power plants that make people sick and fry the sky. That plan is being challenged in court, and an unfriendly Congress is attacking every aspect of the administration's plan to move the country to cleaner fuels. On the other hand, the president, Republicans, and large corporations are pushing a new trade deal with 12 Pacific countries. Environmentalists say the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, would steamroll national and local laws protecting human health and the environment. Before taking the helm at EPA in 2013, Gina McCarthy led Connecticut's Department of Environmental Protection. She also served as a top official in Massachusetts Environmental Agency. For over 30 years, she worked as a state and local level on policies balancing energy, the economy, and the environment. Please welcome Gina McCarthy to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Greg. It's good to be here. Thank you for coming to San Francisco. Hi, everybody. Uh, (laughs) uh, Climate is often talked about as a cost, as a negative thing. What's the upside in moving to a clean energy economy? What's the opportunity here? I think the opportunity is to take actions that turn climate, the challenge of climate change into an economic opportunity. We have solutions today that are being invested in today that really will lead to a low-carbon future and make the planet a much more stable place and give us a, a nice future to hand to our kids. So there's every opportunity for us to do as we've done for 44 years at EPA. Every time we have moved ahead and reduced pollution, the result has been better health 
a really healthier environment and economic growth. We have never had to choose between the two with the issue of climate. It could never be uh, more, more of an opportunity to actually move to a more sustainable economy for this country and have our solutions, our technologies moved across the world so that it's tremendous economic opportunities for us. And, and frankly, the choices are very stark. If you don't want to take action, the costs are already being felt, and they will get much more severe. So the status quo has a cost. Uh, I've interviewed many corporate executives, Ford Motor Company, Walmart. A lot of big businesses are behind moving on, on climate change. Mm -hmm. Why isn't more being done when the evidence is clear, the science is clear, business supports, a lot of businesses support it, yet the yeah. action isn't happening? I think the action is happening, Greg, uh, as, as much as we'd like, no. But I think that we are now seeing renewables in levels that we haven't seen before, and that's because they're becoming very cost competitive. Uh, we're looking at, since this administration took office, we're looking at wind power tripling, and we're looking at solar going tenfold. Solar now is competitive with, with, with fossil fuel. I mean, we have an opportunity here. We have energy efficiency technologies we've never had before. And I think President Obama's message is that in order to figure out how we get to the levels we need in 2050, we do not have to have already charted every path or found every technology we're going to need to get there. But we know that we can make leaps and bounds by the technology innovations that we've already been able to put on the table and to make money on. There is absolutely no reason why we shouldn't take action now to take advantage of that and fully expect that the U.S. will do everything the U.S. always does, which is we innovate. We grow new companies. We find the new solution. EPA's job is to get people moving and in our clean power plan to send a long-term signal on where investment should be had. Not cost, Greg investments should be made. And you've been in Silicon Valley. What cool things have you seen during your trip here that, that might be relevant to, to climate change? Oh, I have seen lots of cool things. Um, I'll give you a... Uh, well, I'm, I'm here, and I've seen you, and climate, <laughs> climate one's pretty cool. I mean, having you connect the dots and get to talk to everybody. Um, but there's been, been cool things and there's been challenging things that I, I see. I, I certainly know that California is in the middle of a historic drought. And, and I think uh, I have Jared Blumenfeld here, who's my regional administrator, uh, right here in California in Region 9. And he's been, you know, sending his troops out trying to figure out how to work with the state. But I also see some tremendous solutions. One of the things that I did that was really cool, very local, um, was I went to a landfill. Now, now as EPA administrator, I often go, I always get to go to the best places. <laughs> this has to be my 2000s landfill visit uh, in, in my 35 years doing this work. Uh, but this was one of the best because we were basically advancing a solar array that's going to really uh, generate something in the order of six megawatts of energy. The reason why it was cool, and this is only a bureaucrat could love this, so I apologize <laughs> for thinking this is exciting, but it is. Basically, the, the uh, county of Alameda, is that right? Alameda. Alameda. Thank you. Uh, got, got together, and they now have uh, a bunch of government agencies that have identified an opportunity to partner together and to do a regional renewable uh, electricity uh, program. So they're buying it in bulk, 
and they've identified all kinds of government buildings in places that are contaminated or open and aren't going to be fully utilized like our, that landfill. And they are going to just save oodles of money by using that pooling power and get through all of the paperwork that has separated us from doing really smart things in government. And I've had Jared following this and supporting it, and now we're actually going to use them as a model so that we can bring federal agencies together and do the same things. So when you have an opportunity here to, to basically send a signal that this is where investment needs to happen, this is where people will save money, this is the future people want, we will find ways of innovating even in the federal government. <laughs> but only after everybody else does it. Yeah. No, yeah, just yeah, kidding, yeah. Just, just kidding. Only kidding, only kidding. The U.S. Navy is doing a lot in that area. But wow, it's great. Have you talked to Secretary Mavis? We have, and they're uh, doing lots of clean fuels. Yeah. He flew in a, in a jet fighter that was uh, half biofuels, and so the, his great green fleet trying to do a lot at the Navy. Uh, but what about, what other countries are innovating faster? Is, is there a possibility that the U.S. could lose its innovation edge in the clean energy race? I think, it's, I think it is possible because you're seeing a lot of investment being made now in, in Europe and Asia on new technology improvements for renewable energy. But I do think that um, the U.S. has a, an edge in this race if we keep moving it forward uh, because I, I think we uh, have a, 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 an incredible opportunity. And as you said, we have multinational companies that are headquartered in the U.S. that are already saying, hey, let's, let's think about this differently. Let's stop you know, dwelling on how bad it could be and let's start moving, it, moving the actions forward. And we have a program that, that many of you probably know. Um, if, if the polling is correct, eight out of ten of you should know. Did you ever see Energy Star? See that little blue label on all the appliances? Guess what that is? It's a greenhouse gas label because it's all about energy efficiency. It was started as a greenhouse gas program. We just forgot to talk about it for quite a few years that way. <laughs> now we are. There's 1,600 partners with us on Energy Star driving new technologies into the market that are saving people huge amounts of money and lowering the greenhouse gas emissions by huge amounts. This is just, we have opportunities here. We are geared up for it. We know how to work markets. We know how to make money. I think what government just has to do is set standards like we always had for pollution. What's healthy? What do we need to achieve? What kind of timeline should we look at? And then the rest just happens uh, because I think we have the, both a government structure of seriousness. We, we actually do a very thoughtful rules and we actually enforce them, which is always very good as well. And so once you do that, the market just generates solutions because the market is created there. And with carbon, we've all worried about how do you get a price on carbon? How do you make it serious enough that it gets integrated into business decisions? And businesses are integrating it now. Yeah. And, and, and so we can do this, and we can have the edge that we actually need to get into Paris and really make a difference. And another institution that's also integrating it is, is the Vatican. The Catholic Church has a, uh, you know, can, uh, a covenant on climate. Uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about uh, Pope Francis and what, what he's doing on. Uh, how do you see that changing the debate and framing this as a moral issue? Well, I think the president was pretty clear when he gave his speech a few years ago saying that he was moving on climate using the authority that's been given to him. 
and that's when he charged EPA to go work on the power sector and work on heavy-duty vehicles and do the work we do. But it's been, uh, it's been a remarkable change. When you, when you talk about this as a moral obligation, when you point out the direct public health impacts and indirect associated with climate change, when you talk about it, when, when the president's economic advisors and Jack Lew talk about it as an economic challenge, people get it. Um, and the Pope uh, is, is actually... Um, uh, being very aggressive in calling attention to this issue and its relationship with an inclusive economy. You know, he, I actually went to Rome to meet with his advisors um, not, not too long ago uh, because I knew that he was working on an encyclical. Now, I can't say that I've read or participated in writing many of those, um, <laughs> so I wasn't telling him how to do that. Um, but I wanted him to know that he's not alone in recognizing that this is a moral challenge. Oh, and I wanted him to know that, that, that the, you know, the big countries, the big polluters like, like uh, the United States and China are making real commitments now. And then the, the great thing about this is the end result is a world that is not just healthier and more stable, but it's also a world where you're growing jobs of the future that you can train people to have now uh, that, are, that are jobs that are going to last. And it, we have an ability at this point to really bring technologies to the table that will raise people out of poverty, give them an opportunity to be in the middle class. The U.S., that's what we're focusing on. It's just not good enough to segregate these issues into who has bureaucratic control over what. The president says we're going to use this to, to actually climb ladders of opportunity for people, and we're going to invest in technologies that will, will drive that forward. And I, I'm just, as you can tell, pretty excited and pretty bullish on our ability at this point to finally get over the hump and start moving forward and, 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 and making the, the right choices and taking the right action and getting very serious. If you're just joining us, our guest today at the Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is U.S. EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, 30% of Congress are Catholics. Do you think that the Pope encyclical could do something that President Obama couldn't, which is change the politics on this issue? I think they're a great dynamic duo. I want them to both do whatever their authorities are. Um, Batman and Superman, there you go. I have to say that I I am Catholic, so I I may be... um, overestimating his influence on me. He's pretty influential. <laughs> but uh, I think around the world it's quite amazing. He does, he does a blog. He blogs and, and tweets and all those kinds of things. And I, got, I had a great time when I, I went to the Vatican to talk to, to them about the Pope's interest in this. And, and they were very clear that it is, it is a very strongly held uh, belief that he has, that this is the absolute right thing to do, and that this is a moral issue. It is about poverty. It is about taking care of the least of these. And we work with a variety of of faith leaders, not just in the Catholic faith, but across all faiths. It's an ecumenical movement, and 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 there are many people that see this as being an essential issue, an essential moral issue. Um, that, that the faith community needs to engage in. And they're very in, engaged in this. Uh, and I think that that gives us new voices at the table to talk to people who maybe have not understood or embraced the issue of climate change from leaders that they will listen to. It's enormously important that this be a very multifaceted 
discussion among all, all cultural sectors, all religions. Uh, because in, in this country, and I think across the world, we're hoping that people will drive this, not politicians. This is about people. Uh, cre- care for creation is, is a common yeah. theme cr- across a lot of yeah. religious traditions. Uh, climate's a moral issue. A lot of people were upset recently when the president approved drilling in the Arctic. So help us understand yeah. drilling in the Arctic. Yeah, I think that it's, it, you know, it's, it's very challenging. Um, and I think what you read about was not an approval, it was a permit. Um, I know that's a bit of a distinction, but those, those facilities, those leases went out a long time ago. And I think the challenge that, that we have had in issuing air permits and others are now having is to make sure that it can be done safely. The decision was not made to open it. The decision was made to, to try to make it as protective as possible as it moves forward. But there are all kinds of challenges. This is never going to be easy. It's never going to be, you know, snap your fingers and everybody lines up and we figure out how to, how to do this. It's going to be a struggle and there'll be difficult decisions all along the way. Because it seems like saying it's a moral issue, but then all the above energy policies kind of trying to have it both ways or, or, or say it's moral, but avoid some really hard choices. Uh, I, think, I think hard choices are being made. I think the, president, uh, the president's job is to make sure that we do this in a way that is deliberate, but maintains opportunities for the market to make choices. But we, what he's trying to do is to make sure that carbon has a price on its head, and that we look for every opportunity we can. We've done it with every pollutant. The issue with carbon is it's really no different than any other pollutant out there. And we have to just send the right signals and the rest happens. If you don't think the energy world is already moving away from fossil to lower carbon sources, then you haven't watched where the energy world is investing its money, because <laughs> it is. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, that there aren't opportunities for every fuel and that we have to work through those issues, and time will make that transition even more dramatic. But I think m- my job is to make sure that I am doing what we did with every air pollutant before. We are reducing it significantly, making people healthier, and growing the economy at the same time. And it's a delicate balance in some cases, but certainly I think in in the issue of of moving towards a low-carbon future, the balance is already tipped, and we are already heading there. The question is how quickly and who's going to win. And how are low oil prices affecting this? Some people would say low oil prices means, hey, I can buy an SUV, oil is cheaper. On the same side, another side, it keeps the tar sands in the ground and makes some of the oil in economically or environmentally sensitive areas uneconomic. So is, yeah. good, is cheap oil working for you or against you? That's a really good question. Um, I, I think that in, in some cases, we certainly, you certainly have to worry about it when we do, you know, when we do things like our car rules. I'm very happy it wasn't just a fuel economy standard. It was a greenhouse gas standard so that we can make sure that we underpin any, any uh, additional emissions that may have been emitted if people are, are running their, their cars more. Those are all challenging issues. Um, but, but frankly, I th- I've had a lot of discussion with the oil and gas sector recently because there's a lot of discussion about reducing methane from the oil and gas sector. And as you may know, we're, we're going out with our clean power plan for the power plants, but we're also going to be going out to regulate methane emissions and volatile organic co- uh, carbons from, um, 
from the oil and gas sector. And, and what I see is that, that the, oil, uh, the oil prices being low are uh, causing the, uh, the industry to regroup and to rethink. And I think you're going to see diversification. I think they're, they're really worried about relying on just one fuel, and you're going to see a lot of uh, transition, and you're going to see a lot of more efficiency brought into that system. How dramatic that happens, I don't know. But they are taking it as a pause, and they are looking at the work that we're doing, which is looking at basically telling them they need to recapture methane as really efficiency measures that they can begin to get their arms around. The, also the idea of unburnable carbon and carbon bubbles starting to really yeah. gain traction in Wall Street and, and move to the fringe. We, I mentioned uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, Sander Levin, who's the ranking member on the House Ways and Means uh, Committee, says there needs to be stronger ec- environmental provisions. Are you satisfied with the environmental protections in TPP? Well, the, environmental, the additional environmental uh, protections in TPP... Are, are really quite remarkable. Uh, they're remarkable for, if you care about uh, the sustainability of fish in the ocean, it is the first time that that is a front and center issue to look at sustainable fisheries. If you're worried about wildlife trafficking, um, it, that's the first time that that is going to be accounted. These are issues that I think are increasingly important, but I respect everybody's discussion about this, but I think the president is right. We need to move forward to try to address these issues. There is nothing directly within EPA's jurisdiction that's impacted by this. It's not uh, additional pollution standards, but it is, I think, important from the standpoint of all of my sister agencies, and if you care about a sustainable future, you have to start doing more to make sure that that fisheries are protected. And if you care about biodiversity and if you care about kids, you know, feeling good about their world and learning uh, and knowing that elephants existed and you want them to continue, if we can't do better with that type of trafficking issues, um, then I don't know what we're going to do. They're going to have a much less rich world than we grew up in. Protecting the environment has not always been so partisan, and I want to roll a clip of someone who was here recently. Uh, This is George Schultz, who was the former Secretary of uh, State and former Secretary of Treasury in the Nixon administration when the EPA was created. Uh, So let's listen to George Schultz talking about the EPA. So I had in creating the EPA, and I've watched it over the years, and it seems to me it has proven itself as a very useful nag to keep after us. And we have better, cleaner air, cleaner water. You would much rather breathe the air in any American city than breathe it in Beijing. Thank you, EPA. <laughs> so there's a little uh, a love note from George Schultz. The, the, uh, uh, where are those days where people, there was a Republican talking about the EPA. Can I we know. get back to a place I where know. the environment is not a partisan issue? You know, I think for most people it isn't, (laughs) which is why I like getting out of Washington, D.C., because it reminds (laughs) me of that, and and not just in California. Uh, I I mean, people are are concerned about this. You know, he he reminds me of one of the um, really fun things that I've done is I I went to Beijing, um, when was I there, last year? And it was right after um, the U.S. Embassy. We worked with the U.S. Embassy to put a particulate monitor on, on the embassy. 
and we did it for the embassy staff, but they started tweeting out the results because people were worried about whether their kids were safe being outside that worked in the embassy, and that's U.S. soil. So we put a monitor up. We trained them on how to analyze the data, and we worked with them on it. And all of a sudden, that data became available to the entire city. And, and, uh, and people started um, getting very anxious about the fact that we were showing levels of, of PM and they were markedly different than the monitors that the Chinese government was reporting on. Shocking, yes. Yeah, I know. But, but the, the really interesting part about that, and I, and I know that we've been working in China for a long time, working with them on air quality issues. But when I was there, I came in right afterwards, and they turned from, you really have to take that monitor down, to realizing that, that, that it was extremely important for uh, their ability to be able to tell their citizenry in Beijing that they were working on this because it got to be a social issue there for them. It escalated in terms of its importance. And all of a sudden, the, the, I'm sorry, this was a few years ago because when I came back last year, they had a new whole entire monitoring system in Beijing uh, up and running. We taught them how, how to manage it, and they have now a, a whole series of new analyzers there in, in Beijing, and all of them are U.S. companies have manufactured those. <laughs> and, and the fun thing is that we made a recent announcement with Secretary Kerry that we're going to do the same thing in other cities, like in India. We're going to put them on our embassies. And people are going to start seeing what the data is because there's so much power in citizenry to be able to speak up and be able to articulate and move in their own countries on this. And I think it, you know, I, I, again, I may be overestimating the power of this, but, but when we went in, in the, the, and the president was negotiating uh, with, with China, on a new uh, uh, joint announcement to, t to really put defined goals on the table for carbon reductions. We put ours on the table, but for the first time, China talked about limiting their carbon pollution, not just an intensity goal, which, was, uh, which most of us were floored by because we, yeah. we wouldn't have thought that this would happen. And I honestly, we spent a long time talking to them about, you now know you have an air pollution problem. You've got to fix it. Would you mind thinking about that in concert with a carbon strategy? Because they go hand in hand. When we go after the carbon pollution in our power sector, what you're going to see is gigantic general public health benefits just because you're getting some of the old fossil fuel units out that pump other pollutants, like particulate matter, into the air. And I, I, think, I think they're realizing that, that the way in which the U.S. has been able to grow our economy as strong as it is and have a, a healthy environment at the same time is the only stability that they really can rely on. If you don't start thinking about the environment as a foundation of a growing economy, you're going to end up where Beijing ended which is people don't want to live there. People are wearing masks every day. It's the kind of haze that you used to see in Los Angeles, only worse. And they're not going to stand for it. 
And so if you really think of it together, there's opportunities here. And I think they, they really have begun to realize this. Why are we going to take care of particulate matter and not think about carbon pollution? And that's a game changer in many ways. It puts China's move, puts pressure on India, puts pressure on Canada. It also takes away the argument that what we do doesn't matter because China and India are going to fry the earth anyway. So how does that change the dynamics, the, the political dynamics? Because now China yeah. is, has put their cards on the table, as you said. It changes the international dynamics tremendously. Um, I, I'll never forget, we, we announced our, when we announced our proposed clean power plan, my, uh, my dance card was filled up by international people coming in, ambassadors from everywhere, different secretaries saying, uh, can you really do this? <laughs> and I kept saying, yes, <laughs> this is a clean air act. We know how to do this one. And, 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 it's, and it hasn't stopped. And, and I think that, that when we made that commitment, the president was confident that he could deliver real domestic action here. We found how to do that. He has a whole plan, not just what EPA is doing, but we're doing many other things as our other parts of the administration. And when he went to China, he was able to, to leverage uh, the Chinese action. And I think that that is going to change the dynamics. And the U.S. wants to go into Paris having already worked with other countries to try to get them on board and get really strong commitments so we finally have an international solution to what we know is a planetary problem. Right, and it seems to be the, companies, the countries are putting their plans out in public earlier this yeah. time around. So what's your hope for it? What's going to happen in Paris? What's the, the likely outcome of a I deal in Paris? I think we want to have an aggressive and adorable agreement, and, and we want to be able to make sure uh, that we move that forward. Does it have to go through Congress? Uh, no. No, no. Will There's be... many other ways, and in, in, in they're already working on many ways in which we can do this simply under our, our current authority. And we think it's, and we know that we can do it in a way that, that's strong enough and, and that will uh, assure us that these actions are going to be taken not just in the U.S., but across other countries. An area, another area where the president's trying to use that executive authority is with the Clean Air Act and the Clean Power Plan mm-hmm. in the United States. That's been challenged in the courts. We'll see some decisions. Uh, his former mentor, Lauren Stribe, said it's unconstitutional. Is it? No. <laughs> uh, but there seems to be odds that there's a House version of the Clean Air Act and the Senate version. They're different. There's maybe a little too much scotch going around back there in the 1990s <laughs> when... Like there's two different versions, no one seems this, to know which one. Yeah, this, this happens with very long bills, um, that there's inconsistencies in certain portions, and, and, and they're right, there's a little difference in language, but, if, but the courts have always given the deference to the agencies to interpret these, looking at the congressional record and looking at what makes sense. And so we have been using an interpretation that has been perfectly well found, perfectly reasonable in the courts, and it's the same interpretation we're using here. You know, there, there is nothing that says that, that if, I, if I regulate mercury in one section of the Clean Air Act, then I'm banned from regulating carbon in other sections of the Clean Air Act. It just would be foolish. So you're you know, confident you're going to win on that oh one? Oh, yeah. I, okay. I, I think... Well, you know, of course, I, I think they're all a slam dunk because we're really smart and we know everything we're talking about. But <laughs> okay. now it's not, not you know, we, we, we've made the case and, and we'll make the case going in. And, you know, lawyers love to pontificate about these things. And I just love to get stuff done. 
you're just joining us, our guest at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club is Gina McCarthy, administrator of the U.S. EPA. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. I'd like to go to our lightning round, the, a series of yes or no questions. Oh, you, the Congress tries to do this to me, and I don't ever respond appropriately. So I just want to warn you, but I have trouble with yes or no's. You're not under oath, and uh, so... Uh, you can't make me, that's all I'm <laughs> telling you. <laughs> Do not now recollect, yes, yeah. <laughs> I do not now, nor have I ever. Environmentalist self-righteousness can be annoying and counterproductive. Well, that's a yes. Okay. <laughs> you are sick and tired of the Keystone Pipeline. Oh, absolutely. Approval of Keystone, the Keystone Pipeline would be a disaster for the climate. I can't answer no to that. I can't answer yes to that. All I know is uh, it's a difficult decision, but it's not the only decision. Is he ever going to make that decision? I sure hope so. (laughs) Yes, of course, of course, of course. If North Korea, Iran, or Syria were responsible for climate change, Republicans would be clamoring to fund a war on warming. (laughs) Should we start that rumor and see what happens? (laughs) I'm just, yeah, so that's a yes. Uh, Mitt Romney, your former boss, yes. understands how climate change threatens America's economy and national security. Um, he certainly, can I, can I give you a longer answer? Because I, I, I did work for him and actually um, we put out a climate action plan, um, which I helped to draft uh, when he was governor. You were the green quarterback. I, I, wa- I was for a little while. Um, uh, he he knows that the work that the the work that you can do, the actions you can take on climate, can be enormously economically beneficial, and he embraced every single one of them. That's what I know, and and so that's all I can tell you. What his position is on climate change right now, I can't tell you. He knows there's know. money to be made, but oh, he he does know. Yeah. This is the last uh, yes or no question for our lightning round. More members of Congress are in the climate closet than the gay closet. (laughs) All I know is that's a big closet and it's full. That's all I know. (laughs) Okay, we'll leave it to... um, Your imagination there, Regina McCarthy. Uh, Water is a big deal. We often talk about climate. How is the drought connected to climate? It's a big thing here in California, the American West. The West was built on the back of snowpack that is going away. I know. I think we've all known that water is where it's at first with climate. Um, there's, there's plenty of evidence that it's been in other countries the reason for wars to be fought. <laughs> and it's, it is going, it's a, a major um, concern. Not just droughts, but floods. And, and that's the dynamic that's so difficult to explain to people who aren't enmeshed in the climate science, is they figure if you've got a downpour, you're all set. It doesn't mean there's a drought. Um, but but it's, it's serious business. You know, one of the, the parts of the president's climate action plan is he, he laid it out in, in three different ways. One is we have to take action to reduce the amount of carbon pollution because that's mitigation. But we have to spend a considerable amount of time working with states and communities on adaptation, what we call resilience. We have to. Boston's going to be... I had the worst winter of my life. This, this year. And we were so happy. In the, I live in Boston, but I work in Washington. 
Um, and and uh, we, we, we were just rooting to beat that record because we felt like it was the worst miserable winter. We got more snow constantly than we've ever re- received. So we were all dancing when we beat that record because it gave us something. <laughs> you know, who wants to fall two inches short of the worst? So we can't say, it's the worst. We want to say, it's the worst. Um, what, what was your question? I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking about oh, drought, go, drought, going to drought. the bar yeah, yeah, and thinking it. about... Yeah, yeah it was the worst. But, but I, was in, I was actually in Kansas last year, and half the state was in a drought, and the other half was, was, in a, it was flooded. It's just, uh, it's just amazing what's happening. And, it's, and it's, it, we are working really hard to understand the, the broad implications of the drought. So uh, how, how do you explain to someone who says, well, it snowed, so global warming's not happening? Or, you know, it's th- these, these extremes, hotter, wetter, drier. Yeah. Is that related to well, climate? We, we keep explaining to them that it's about extreme weather events. It's about weather events that we normally have, but they're just going to be worse. I mean, I, there's no easier way to explain that. Um, and and I, I, it goes, well, the, you know, the issues related to drought grade go well beyond, you know, what's happening in our wells for drinking water, um, which, is, which is extremely concerning, especially to tribes in this area, frankly, and uh, in, in, in many communities now. Uh, they just don't have drinking water supplies, and that's certainly not just limited to California. It's getting very extreme. But one of the things we're thinking about is it matters for all of the infrastructure that's in place today to deal with stormwater. What do you do with the floods that you have? All mm-hmm. of our calculations on how much you know, pollutants can go into a stream and keep it healthy for fisheries and swimming and drinking, all that's going to change if you don't have the flows anymore. You know, it's not that we want to rely on that, but we do. You know, the, we, and so everything changes for EPA. That's why every federal agency has gone through an adaptation plan to look at all the tools we have in place, all the decisions we make, what gets changed in the changing climate, whether it's because of the floods or because of the drought. Uh, but water is where people are going to feel it and see it most, which is... One of the reasons why EPA is shoring up the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act by finalizing a rule that says what's the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act. Uh, now, I know that most people would think that if you have a statute that's 43 years old, we might have decided this already. Not the case. Uh, it's gotten very confusing uh, through different court actions, but this is our ability to protect the water that we have never mind how little we might have. And people are also concerned about their food. The World Health Organization recently said that glyphosate, did I say that right? Glyphosate, yeah. Uh, which is an ingredient in Roundup and a, a major uh, weed killer, is probably carcinogenic. Yes. What's EPA going to do about that? Is well, that EPA is in the middle of doing a, a, a new assessment of gly- glyphosate, um, and we're going to be finalizing that soon. Um, I, th- I think we do the best job we can on the science and the risks um, all of these issues with pesticides are very challenging. That one in particular is, is, is challenging. It's, it's so uh, broadly used, and it's used in so many ways. So EPA has a, a couple of choices. We look at the risks associated with all new pesticides, and we look at, at when things change, and we try to periodically look at them as well. Uh, but we also um, have to look at, at whether or not there are management systems that you could put in place that will allow those, those pesticides to be used appropriately. And we're also looking, you know, it gets more difficult 
because we're looking at how to control drift. We're looking at genetically modified seeds that, that are, are uh, uh, basically married with the use of, of glyphosate as well. Um, so it is, it, there's increasing challenges for EPA uh, that, that go well beyond what, what Schultz might have anticipated when we were first born. And a lot of that uh, drives... quite challenging. A lot of that drives king corn. This country's kind of uh, yeah. gone pretty deep into corn that's pulled back a little bit recently. Uh, if you look at food security and changing the food system, does corn's role need to change? Yeah. I think that, it, uh, uh, again, I can't answer the question. What I know is that, is that uh, agriculture is... Um, constantly changing. We, we were just talking uh, relative to food security. This is another conversation I actually had at the Vatican uh, with folks who are working in other countries to look at, at how to get people out of poverty and change the, the structure of agriculture for them. I think it's very challenging in this country, agriculture, at this point. They are working, uh, they are a, a sector that's most impacted by drought and by floods. Um, they are looking at new techniques and new technology to try to work their way through those things. But every time that corn prices go up, uh, people like to talk about, re- uh, you know, uh, basically renewable fuels and what impact that's had on prices go up. And then you go and talk to, to others and, and you go in Iowa and they like it. You go in, in a chicken farm community, they don't like it. I mean, it, 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 it's all over the block. Some people think it's great, some people don't. I think EPA's job is to make sure that we work with agriculture so they can keep producing products. But my job is to make sure that the water stays clean, that the air stays healthy, and that we work with them as best we can on the choices that they're making. If you're just joining us, our guest today, Climate One of the Commonwealth Club is Gina McCarthy, Administrator of the U.S. EPA. I'm Greg Dalton. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Texas Governor Rick Perry was our guest in 2014. While he agreed that government has a role to play in protecting the environment, Perry was concerned that too much regulation could get in the way of progress. I just think we've, we've allowed our government to get so big, so cumbersome, so layered that um, it's, it's lost in too many areas its focus and its ability to be efficient. There are really two questions out there. One is, you know, is, is the climate changing? If the climate's changing, why is it changing? And if man's engagement is the reason it's occurring, then we need to have the solutions to that. And my great concern is that policies that are put in place in Washington, D.C., that can strangle the economy of this country, jeopardize our ability to innovate. And I think that's the bigger question, not fighting amongst our, our, ourselves or trying to, uh, to, to push people off into corners, but to recognize that America and America's innovation, both the private sector working with the public sector and coming up with the answers to these great challenges that we have relative to uh, the environment. That's our role, and we cannot do it if we strangle our economy, if we put our economy in jeopardy. Rick Perry, former governor of Texas, speaking with Climate One in 2014. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guest, EPA Chief Gina McCarthy at the Commonwealth Club. 
we have some students in the audience, and I'd like you to sort of think about them and what you say to them about their future and what our generation is doing to steward the resources for yeah. them. I think kids are great. I'd like to keep them around. <laughs> that's my first, Would you that's like my to, first message. Okay. <laughs> um, I, the, I, I think one of the things that's amazing, and I, I should tell you, I had a couple of other really cool visits while I was here. I got to go over to Facebook, um, and, and that was really interesting to see the new building and the work, how buildings look um, that attract young, vibrant kids out of college. They don't look like EPA buildings. That's the first <laughs> thing I'm, I'm going to say, uh, although I thought they were really cool. And we're getting better. We're getting better. Um, but I also went to Google. And one of the great things about kids is, is how much information they have that's available to them. Um, and, and how much they can learn and how active they are. I can't tell you the number of schools I've gone where kids know a whole lot more than most of the people that, that I talk to in, I shouldn't say in Washington, anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. Should we just hand over anywhere. the keys to them? I, th- I think that would actually be a really good idea. I think after being in Google and Facebook, we actually have uh, done that um, because everybody's a kid to me these days. And it gets worse and worse every year. Um, but, but they're incredibly active. They're bright. Um, they're willing to face challenges. Um, I, I spent a little bit of time um, in Taiwan at a school where those kids were working with partner schools in, I think it was in New Jersey, a school in New Jersey, to exchange information on how to reduce carbon pollution from the schools. It was, it was an unbelievable uh, opportunity for me to see how bright and engaged kids are. They, they really are the future. If we, if we set a course that is right for them, uh, then they will, they will run. And, and I know that there's lots of kids here in the audience. Some of them are going to other countries to visit, like India. Um, we can learn from one another, but what was so fascinating with, with both Google and Facebook is how much, they, how much information they have available that can get out to, to kids. Uh, EPA has a big um, emphasis now on citizen science mm-hmm. because I think we do need to get people more engaged in sciences, more be able to access data without that being filtered by anybody, including the Environmental Protection Agency. Go at it. Go see it. We're developing technologies that are, you know, that are allowing people to understand what their local stream quality is, what their local air quality mm-hmm. is, and getting it out. Because when people have information, it is power. We said that, I said that in the 60s. <laughs> I say it today, only it's, it's amazing. And when we saw the demonstration of Google Earth Engine, you know, being able to look and see about land changes and changes in water and changes associated with, with different types of activities that we regulate, it's just an amazing uh, information that's going to be at their fingertips. And the world is going to be theirs to shape at some point in time. My hope is that we hand the one that where it's not quite so challenging. Where we can be proud of. Yeah. We're talking with U.S. EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy at Climate One. Let's have our audience question. Welcome. Thank you. So this question is coming from the perspective of a 16-year-old interested in going into public policy, born and raised in the Bay Area. What message do you think, like the single shortened message that we should be sending out about the California drought? Um, the single message is that, um, that it is directly related to a changing climate and that everybody needs to be part of the solution. Everybody. Thank you for that question. Let's have our next audience question for Administrator McCarthy. 
Thank you. Um, you've talked a lot about uh, what the EPA is doing to address greenhouse gas emissions to address climate change, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the EPA is doing to address what's often referred to as climate change's evil twin, uh, ocean acidification. Yeah, <laughs> it's evil twin. I like that. Uh, actually, this is a favorite uh, subject matter of uh, Secretary Kerry. He is a big oceans person. We had a big oceans conference uh, last year that he pulled together, and EPA is very active in this. And Jared probably wants to jump up and down because he's kind of an oceans person too. He's done a lot of work on this. Ocean acidification is the one issue that the IPCC is just beginning to get... The UN climate scientist. Is, is yeah. just beginning. To, he's told me no acronyms, and here I am acronyming. Um, is that a word? Uh, <laughs> Basically, ocean acidification is the one issue that I think we're beginning to really see the dangers associated with ocean acidification. It wasn't clear until fairly recently that, that people began to focus on the science. I was out in Washington not, not long ago, and all of the Washington oyster beds are now moving to Hawaii. And it's because of the temperature and the acidification. It's, it's un, it, it could be extraordinarily uh, concerning uh, as you're looking at the science. EPA's working on those. It, it, the lead in the U.S. government is NOAA, the National Oceanographic Atmos Atmospheric Administration. Atmospheric Administration. <laughs> I say the acronyms, I forget what it stands for. Um, so, it, and, and we're working with it, uh, with them and with others on this. Uh, but it is, it is very disconcerting, and you're absolutely right. It's a factor, a climate factor, which I don't think we've yet gotten our arms around or understood its full implications. But, it, but its impacts are being felt. One implication is the coral reef dies. That's yeah. the bottom of the food chain for a lot of subsistence people in developing countries. That could have some real serious consequences. Let's go to our next question. Hello. I'm a big fan of the Clean Water Act, as many of us are, I'm sure. Um, and I'm interested to understand the impact it can have on the agriculture community. And so yeah. I've been watching the lawsuit in Iowa about suing upstream nitrate. And I'm wondering how much uh, EPA is watching that lawsuit and implications uh, for larger Clean Water Act yeah. Well, uh, I'm a fan of the Clean Water Act, too. Thank you. And I think we're all a fan of safe drinking water, so that's why I like it, right? Um, the, its impact on agriculture, um, we're, we're getting ready to finalize uh, the clean water rule, um, which is going to be a really big opportunity for us. Um, I think it will, uh, what impact it will have on agriculture is to make sure they can still do their jobs, but we can still deliver safe drinking water. That's what this is all about. I think agriculture has raised some concerns about it. Um, I think when we said potato, they said potato. You know, they, we said half full, they said half empty. So we're going to be extraordinarily clear about what we're doing with our clean water rule. We are going to be able to write it in a way that continues to protect the exemptions that they enjoy that allow them to do normal farming and ranching activities. But we're going to be very clear about what water is absolutely necessary to protect so that if, you f if you're planning to pollute it or degrade it in some way, you have to get a permit or at least ask about whether mitigation is necessary. And I don't think that's too much to ask, and I don't think it conflicts in any way with agriculture continuing to do its business. Now, you asked about the Iowa lawsuit. This is all about uh, basically um, nutrients that are, that are being emitted. 
in Iowa in particular is, is something with the Des Moines Water Company is basically saying they have to treat water considerably more than they would otherwise and charge their customers for it as a result of what they are saying are nutrients that are being put into the, their upstream waters that are ending up coming to, the, to their uh, water system. And so there, there, there are a variety of lawsuits happening. But honestly, we are, I think, working as hard as we can with USDA and agriculture to find opportunities for reductions in nutrient pollution. They know that they have a responsibility to be a good steward of the environment. And I think if we can continue with this partnership and bring science to the table then I think we'll be able to resolve these issues in a way that allows them to do their business while everybody else can enjoy the, the clean water that we all have as a right. Let's have our next question. Hi. So the U.S. federal government, are, there's large quantities of fossil fuel production on U.S. federal land currently, including in the Powder Basin in Wyoming and Powder BLM Basin, land yep. all over the place. Uh-huh. And the federal government, this is an area where the administration has direct authority, and the federal government is effectively subsidizing fossil fuels by allowing expansion of coal production on these areas. So is the administration going to curtail coal production and other fossil fuel production in these areas as part of meeting its climate goals? Yeah, it's, it's one of the ongoing challenges is to figure out how we can sort of take advantage of the minerals that the United States government owns, but make sure that if they are developed and used, that we do it in a safe and responsible way. I think there's a lot of discussions going on about how to, to manage those choices effectively. Uh, but on the, on the other end of the spectrum, we know we have responsibilities to actually manage our, our lands effectively. And, and those choices are going to continue to be made, and we're going to let science drive it. But we are also going to know that if we are burning coal, there are technologies available to actually make that the most efficient and clean way that we possibly can. Uh, But you're absolutely right. There's there's minerals to be had on federal lands. There's a lot of mining operations. I think the Department of the Interior is doing the best job they can to make sure that that development is done safe and responsibly. But there is a balance that needs to be made here. We're talking about the environment with U.S. EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next question. Thank you. Just (coughs) last year, Lake Erie had some big issues contaminating the drinking water in Toledo. And I'd like to know how will the EPA be moving forward addressing pollution from CAFOs, the concentrated animal feeding operations, and other types of agriculture to prevent this from happening in the future? Um, so that everybody's on the same playing field. This is about um, uh, the uh, Western Lake Erie, which is very shallow. And it has what you call harmful algal blooms, which are really creepy algae that grows. Actually, creepy algae growths are everywhere, much more than they, they used to be. In this particular area, it's surrounded by agriculture, and there's no question that nutrient pollution is is impacting that, but it's also an issue of the temperature of that water getting much warmer, so it's a climate issue as well. So we're seeing these harmful algal blooms popping up in more places. And I spent some time with the mayors um, in... uh, Actually, we, we gathered in Chicago... Uh, around there because a harmful algal bloom had actually shut down the drinking water supply in the city of Toledo for four days. It cost multi-millions of dollars, and it's because the, the, um, 
harmful algal blooms actually produce these what they call cyanotoxins, which are very powerful toxins that if they get in your drinking water, you don't want to be drinking it. And so we actually have a multi-pronged approach to this issue. Part of it includes working with agriculture and in figuring out how we reduce the nutrient loading that's going in that may be contributing it to it, but it's not the only issue, and it's not happening only in Western Lake Erie. So we have a, a really uh, uh, a cross-federal agency effort, not just to work with agriculture and to work with USDA on conservation practices and getting buffers and, and our ability to address that, but we are doing really cool stuff mm -hmm. with new technologies to monitor harmful algal blooms so that you can see when they may be impacting a water supply or about to. EPA put a platform on the space station mm. to figure out whether we or not we could monitor water quality to be able to track harmful algal blooms by looking at basically it's a, a it, it I'm never going to explain this because I'm not good at this. But you shoot light down and you see what it looks like when it comes back at you. You look at light fractions and you see if you can measure turbidity in the water, which is a way to track harmful algal blooms. And it actually worked. And so we work with NOAA and with NASA, and we actually have a whole tracking system where we can, on a daily basis, see where these things are so that we can inform water managers, water treatment managers, every day about whether any harmful algal blooms are approaching so they can make decisions about their water intakes and whether to shut them off or not. So there's lots of things going on that, re that relate to what's, what's causing the problem, but also recognizing that in a changing climate, it, these things are happening and will keep happening, and we have to use science and technology to track it and prevent it from leading to health consequences. So there's lots of fun things going on at EPA and across the federal government. Let's have our next question for Administrator McCarthy. Hi, we've talked a lot about water today and, you know, the drought and the importance of clean drinking water. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to get your perspective, and including the EPAs and the president's, um, thoughts around fracking, and um, it's a really huge issue right now, and on the one hand, I understand that it's helping to increase our domestic oil production, but on the other hand, we've seen reports of it causing earthquakes, and there's obvious signs that it's uh, impacting our drinking water. So I was just curious as to why your, your thoughts on that was. Boy, you asked a really big question. Uh, EPA is working on this issue in a, a number of different ways. Let's, let's just stick with water quality issues because we could hit the earthquake issue as well. Uh, but the, the water quality issue is something that Congress actually asked EPA to look at, and we have been doing that for a few years, and we have uh, uh, only a short period of time for you to see our uh, draft assessment report on this. Basically, they told us to look at the whole water cycle, and we're hydrofracking. Everybody knows what hydrofracking is. Where hydrofracking can impact or potentially impact water supplies. Uh, potential water supplies as well. And, and we have done um, a series of about 18 um, different uh, research projects to be able to answer that question about where the vulnerabilities are 
as your, as your hydrofrac in terms of their ability to impact. And we're going to be, uh, hopefully be able to provide that information in a way which points in the direction of how you can use existing technologies and best management practices to address those, those potential problem sites. We have to wrap up. I'd like to uh, end by asking you, what is your carbon vice? Oh, well, my carbon vice is I really enjoy going home, so I fly a lot. I'm sorry, but I love my children and my husband, and I'm not sorry about that. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Gina McCarthy, Administrator of the U.S. EPA. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's thank Gina McCarthy for her comments here today at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.